Hello and welcome to everybody that's here this morning, perhaps those that are watching on the internet. This past week, I had the pleasure of flying out of the country for my nine to five job. And it's always an experience when getting in an airplane, even though we may understand how the airplane works, how it flies, why it flies, what forces are at stake and how the mechanics of such machine work. It's always amazing to me when I'm riding and I look out the window and the airplane is rising and there we go. And I was reminded of, of the verse in, or the passage in Colossians. And by the way, this is not in the notes, it's just something I, I was pond, uh, pond, uh, pondering and just reflecting upon. Why does the mechanics and physics of, of the airplane work? In short, it is because Jesus holds everything in his hand and he ordained it to be so. That's why. I'll read to you Colossians 1, 15 to 17. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. This is true not only spiritually, but also physically in the whole creation that God has made. Let us be encouraged when we are experiencing something that, whether we understand or not understand, why does it work? Why does this orderly universe work the way it does? That's because it is under the rulership, the kingship of Christ. With that in mind, today's sermon, we're going to look at the sovereignty of God, the absolute rule of God in everything that he has created, specifically in the saving of his people. If you are able, let's please stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. The authoritative word of God reads as follows. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing to us your power, your majesty, your sovereignty, which we learn in your word. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit teaches us today and empower us to apply the implications of your sovereignty into our lives, specifically to draw us to repentance, either for salvation or to correct our path as your children. Allow us then to rest in you, to rest in your goodness, in your faithfulness. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So today's sermon is in continuation of two weeks ago, right? Because we had Reformation Sunday last Sunday. 
Now we go back to this passage that I preached on two Sundays ago. And the title of it is God's Sovereignty in Display, Part 2. Quick recap, sovereignty, sovereignty of God in display, that is absolute power and authority over a given jurisdiction. What is a jurisdiction that God has? All. All that he has created. That's under his jurisdiction. He has sovereignty over that. We saw last time that God is in control of all things, including the salvation of his people. If he were not so, then nobody, no one would be saved. God foreknows, that means he selects in advance. We saw that God predestines, that means to determine the outcome ahead of time. And those that he foreknows and predestines, he does, though, he does so in order to conform those people to the image of his son. That primarily is in two ways, in, that, in the context of that passage, is to the suffering that Jesus, the son, went through, and also to the perfection that Jesus reached, or that he inherently has, that perfection we will reach. We're going to focus today on how it is that God not only foreknows someone, but the moment God foreknows someone in eternity past, it is a done deal. That person will experience glorification at the end of our salvation, if you will. Some key teachings from last time was there exist two schools of thought. First, we saw that synergism essentially means that Human merit, human wisdom, human choice cooperates with the saving work of God. Synergism. Now, is that biblical? Or what is the alternative? The other school of thought is monergism. That is, that the work of salvation is something that God alone does. Alone. If you want to contribute something to it, the only thing you can contribute is your wickedness and your sin. Nothing else. Monergism. So then, we understand that biblically, salvation is a work of God alone. God predestined those who he would save. And no man, I don't care who you are, no one will ever come to God and take credit for his or her salvation. So if you missed two weeks ago, you are now cut up. You're ready to go for the next passage here. Today, we will see that God in his power and his authority and his mercy, he completes the work of salvation of his people. If he decreed it to be so in eternity past, he will complete it. So then what is Paul's main point in the second half of our text? Simply put is that those who God chooses for salvation, it's a done deal. That person will persevere. That person will be glorified in the end. So the key takeaway then is going to be that you cannot earn your salvation. It is a gift of God. Once God saves you by the effectual call in that appointed time in your lives that he has called you, and you become a Christian, he will keep you. You would not be able to keep yourself. 
And that is great news in itself because if it depended on me, if it depended on you to keep your salvation, we would do what humans do best. We would screw that up. It is not up to us to be saved, and we have no power to keep our salvation. Okay? Now, obviously, churches have split over this issue. And I reiterate to you, in preaching this passage, the only agenda I have is for us to have a biblical view of salvation. Salvation is either a work of God that He does by giving us faith, by regenerating our, our heart, our mind, by faith alone in Christ, or we contribute to it. And we will see that because God is the one who calls the shots, God is the one who decreed who would be saved, we have no say in it. Zero. So the first point I'm going to talk about is the assurance of the salvation of the believer. The assurance of the salvation that we have. So God is so sure of the salvation of His people that because He has decreed it from eternity past, before it actually takes place, God declares it to be so. He predestined. He foreknows. He's going to call those people to repentance and faith. Those people are going to go through sanctification through the rest of their life until the physical body dies. And then at the resurrection... There's going to be glorification. Glorification. So let us look at the text we're focusing on today, which is Romans 8.30. As two Sundays ago was Romans 8.29. Now let's go to 8.30. It says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. As a reminder, when it says those... Paul is talking about those he has been describing in chapter 8. That would be those who belong to God, those who love God, those whom the Holy Spirit intercedes for, those who are strengthened by God, those who are saved. That is who God, through the Apostle Paul, is speaking about. Now let's take a look at the word predestined. Predestined in this sense, means to determine something ahead of time or before its occurrence. Here's when that question comes up. You mean it's, it's not up to the individual to, to choose or to be saved? That is correct. Let us take a quick look at Ephesians 1, verse 11. It says, In Him, and in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, same word, according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will. So God, in His mercy, in His eternal wisdom, ordained that the salvation of His elect would take place. According to His purpose. What purpose? Well, we've been told that His purpose is to make us more and more like Jesus. Until the day of glorification, when we will be as He is, in a glorified body state. 
So since otherwise no one could go to God, God comes to us. The most evil event in human history is when something horrible, horrific happened to a good person. That's the only time it's happened. That's the crucifixion of Jesus when he was murdered brutally in a humiliating way. And we're reading Acts chapter 2 that that event in history happened as God had decreed for it to happen. And yet we are told and we know from Scripture that those folks who murdered Jesus had blood on their hands. They're responsible. They acted according to their wicked intentions and their sinful nature. And then we learn the message of the gospel is what? That God gave. God gave his only begotten son. Right? God ordains. God predestines. God foreknows. God decrees. Otherwise, we would have to consider that Jesus would come to this earth, God Almighty in the flesh, and then God the Father would kind of be waiting out to see what the wicked men, what humanity would do with Jesus in order to program in what's going to happen. You see how silly that would be? That is not the God we serve. There is no plan B. There is what he has decreed, and that takes place. Now, this concept of God having his elect, the people that he chooses to work through, to save, to redeem, is something that we see all the way back in the Old Testament. It is not new to the New Testament. Let us take a quick look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. This is God talking to Israel. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. That's the concept of election, God having the people that he chooses, going back to the people of Israel. And if you notice, it says that he didn't choose them because they were great. It actually says the opposite. And as we learn more about Israel, they were chosen because they were the most detestable out of the nations, the most insignificant. So much could be learned from that as we realize that if indeed the Lord has reached us and rescued us and saved us, may it never be, never be that we look around and we say, ha, oh, look at me. I'm so much smarter, so much more intellectually capable than you or the rest of those poor Armenians. We can do that, brothers, sisters, we can do that. If indeed we are saved, let us remember that God chooses the worst, the most detestable. 
And in that, he gets the most glory. So God predestined. We see that concept that he decrees who's going to be saved. And then the verse says that he calls those that he has selected. Called. What does that mean? That means that in eternity past, God appointed a particular time in history that his elect would be saved. A key takeaway about that is, let us not assume that if somebody is elect, that they are born saved. That is not true. All human beings are born under the curse of Adam. We all are born with an evil heart that hates God and that rebels against God. So just because somebody is elect does not mean that they're saved from the get-go. They still need to be saved. So there's a time that God calls those people, and those people come to faith, repentance, salvation, newness of heart, newness of mind, newness of lifestyle. That happens at a particular point that God has appointed. How does that happen? By the preaching of the Word of God. By the hearing of the Word of God. That is the means God uses to draw people to Himself in faith, in repentance. As we come to Christ for salvation. God called those he foreknew. A quick excerpt from the Second London Baptist Confession. I have it here in the screen. Chapter 3, paragraph 6. This is not the entirety of the paragraph, but it summarizes here. It says, Therefore, those who are elected, being fallen in Adam, remember, they're not born saved, that's not biblical, are redeemed by Christ and effectually called to faith in Christ by his Spirit, working at the appropriate time. Okay, so this takes place in time and space. There's a particular day that if you are genuinely saved by the Lord, a particular time, even if, you know, I've, I'm aware that some people don't know the exact time that the Lord saved them, but at a particular time, you were called and there was no turning back. The Lord drew you to himself and you could not deny his call. Those that he called And then we are told that those who he called, he also justified. This is what I would call, we are here in this point in history. Okay? If you ever go to a mall or to a city and you're trying to find out where you are in order to get to where you're going, the map shows a little star and it says, you are here. My brothers and sisters, if you are a child of God, you have been justified. And now we are walking a life of perseverance, a life of sanctification. In other words, we are here. We have been justified, and this is a step of our salvation that we are in. Justification is the legal declaration by God that someone is righteous in his sight. Justification. This righteousness that God sees in us comes by faith alone in Christ alone. 
There is no amount of good works, of good behavior, of fake it till you make it, to be justified. Never. No such thing. By faith. Romans 3.28 reads as follows. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. By faith. And how does someone obtain true saving faith? God gives it. Salvation through faith is a gift of God. Salvation, a gift of God. Faith, in order to be saved, a gift of God. Yes, both. We see that all over Scripture. And we should be able to at least point to where this is explicitly stated. I would highly advise you that you know by memory Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That's one place you could go to. Salvation is a gift. Faith itself is a gift in order for us to believe and be saved. And we know that God grants belief and repentance to a person. Philippians 1.29, 2 Timothy 2.25. Brothers and sisters, these are references that we should have quickly in our mind. Okay? Justification by faith alone. That faith, that saving itself is given to us. It's not something we gain. That is how we obtain that faith. Justification by faith alone. All that is a gift of God. So then we are told that those that are justified are also glorified. So that is where, again, find yourself in a mall, in a city. You're looking at this map of God's eternal salvation. And you look, okay, we're here. And we are headed over there. Okay, that's the simplest way we could put it. However, each of our trips from here to there, it's going to vary. Some will experience more trouble, more tribulation. Some will have it a little bit better, humanly speaking. But that's where we are all heading. In our sanctification, we are headed to the step of glorification. The future step, the last step in order to accomplish God's purpose, which is to make us more and more like Jesus. Glorification. So we are foreknown, we are predestined, we are called, we are justified, and then we are glorified. As Jesus died and he was buried, he was put in the tomb, Jesus rose from the dead in the body that he, was, that he, was, that he died. That body rose incorruptible in a glorified state. My friends, I reemphasize this. Christianity is the only true belief system that assures us that the calamity of this body of death will be restored and will be made into perfection. We know that. We have the receipts for that, if you will, because Jesus claimed it so, and he was the first one, the first fruit of being resurrected in a glorified body. That is where we are headed, to a glorified body. 1 John 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, 
we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You see, in a nutshell, this verse covers that the elect, children of God, have been saved, but what we will be has not yet appeared. Okay? Again, we are here, we are going there. And when we get there, we're going to be as he is. Now, to the Christian, I say this. This passage, often referred to as the golden chain of redemption, should bring you much comfort. This should bring you much assurance, much rest, knowing that the work that God began in you, He will be faithful to complete it until the time, the day, which you are glorified. My brothers and sisters, that event will happen in history, in the future. It will happen. Just as each of us was born from our mother's womb in a day and time in history, we have a birth date, right? The day that we were born. We are going to have a resurrection date when our bodies will be raised in an incorruptible manner. That day will happen. And we should have great assurance and great comfort. Salvation is not earned, it is not kept, and cannot be finished by human efforts, only by faith in Christ, which is granted to His elect. So then, why do we struggle? Even as believers, why do we struggle? We are justified and now we're walking that path in sanctification. Why does it seem difficult? Is it that we lose our salvation? What does the Bible says? Second point is, do we lose salvation or do we lose assurance? Loss of salvation versus loss of assurance. It's not the same thing, my brothers and sisters. We cannot lose salvation because we never gained it in the first place. It's not biblical. It's not possible. However, it is possible to lose our assurance. This is very important. Okay, This is what this passage is teaching us here. If you are saved, if God decreed that you be saved, you're going to be kept. You cannot lose it. The issue is, are we? I hope this gets our attention. Let us look at Titus 3, verses 3 to 5. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hated one another. Stop right there. All of us were either there or are still there. Okay? All of us, either there or once were. Going on. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God Savior appeared, okay, let us realize that. It is not, well, when you got your act together and you started being good and going to church, no. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God our Savior appeared, He saved us. 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There it is. As Paul wrote this to Titus, this passage here, it describes what the Christian once was. And, by implication, what those that are not saved still are in, in that first, in that first sentence of the passage. There are some folks that think they are saved, but are still in perdition. How so? Well, their lives give that away. Let us look at Matthew 13, verses 18 through 26, which is our Lord Jesus explaining the parable of the sower. There's parables that we're like, man, like maybe he means these, maybe that. Let us look at some comments. Jesus actually gives us the explanation of the parable of the sower. Four different types of seeds that are sowed, and then he, he tells us here what that means. So let's read it. The words of our Lord Jesus, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Three out of those four scenarios in this passage that the Lord Jesus gives us are examples of a false believer. Remember, Jesus says the path is narrow that leads to the kingdom, to eternal life. Few are those that find it. All of us here have heard the gospel. Okay, I mean, I recognize everybody in this room. I don't know about watching online. Everybody in this room has heard the gospel. Therefore, all of us here fall in one of those four categories. All of us. Which soil is our heart? Which soil is our heart? I urge you, fall on the mercy of God. Live in repentance and obedience of faith. My dear friend, in the previous point, we saw that we can take comfort. We know that we have the assurance of salvation because it is through faith alone, through Christ alone, and God is the one who gives us that. And blessed be His name for it. Praise be to Him for doing that. That said, let us make no mistake. If our lives are continuously one of no grief over our sin and continuous disobedience to God's word, with little to no interest for the things of God, you are in danger, my friend. So then this exhortation, that while salvation cannot be lost, 
there may be a lack of assurance because there is no true salvation to begin with. This is serious business. And it's not just me here making up stuff. The Apostle Paul writing to the churches warns them pretty much in every of his letters. Writing to the churches. Are we exempt from that warning? No, my brothers, we are not. Titus 1.16 reads as follows. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Their works. Let us take heed, my brothers and sisters. So loss of assurance, loss of salvation. There's no loss of salvation. But if there's worry there on our behalf, it could be because there's no salvation to begin with. Now, if we are saved and it cannot be lost, we could experience loss of assurance. The primary reason for loss of assurance? Disobedience. Unbelief. This happens when the child of God, as a sheep, has gone astray and is in danger, not of losing salvation, but of severe discipline from the Lord. Long-term consequences for disobedience to God. Not to mention ruining your testimony and your Christian witness. But if you are a genuine Christian, even though you may be losing assurance of your salvation, you will repent and God will bring you back to his fault. You can bet on that. If that does not happen, then we're back to the scenario I just mentioned. You actually were never saved to begin with. And you are not a child of God. So the loss of assurance of a believer is because you are kicking against the goats, as Paul was. You are in rebellion to God. But if you are a child of God, you know that you are not walking right and you're going to repent. God will not leave you in a life of disobedience. As we preached many months ago in Romans, may it be God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And not a, a serious spanking, if you will. So let us not lose the joy of our salvation due to sin, my brothers and sisters. Come back to the fold of God. Repent. And be assured of your salvation. Okay? The next and final point I'd like to point out is, many ask, then, who is elect? Who is it? I want to know those special folks. That way I can join their team. Right? Who, who, who wouldn't want to be? Who is elect? Depending on the context, I would provide the following answers. Who is elect? First of all, I don't know. That's the, the most easy and obvious, sincere answer. I don't know who's elect. That's why I ask God, and you should ask God as well, to empower us to preach the gospel to whoever will listen. 
We don't know who God's elect are. He has his elect. For sure he does. Who's his elect? I don't know. Who's his elect? We could add this. Those who, whom God has appointed, those are his elect. Some of those are already saved, and some of those are yet to hear the gospel. So that should inspire us and fuel us to share the gospel by word, right, by hearing, but also by conducting ourselves in a way that gives a true testimony of the work that God has done in our lives. So, right, we don't know. Who are they? Those that God has appointed, we know that. And then next, who's God select? Well, every individual in the church of God. The true church of Christ, those people are his elect. Those that God chooses are kept separate for a purpose. That is the church of God. Let us read Ephesians 1.4. It says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is again summarizing the point we've been looking at in the last two sermons. Christians are chosen by God in eternity past with the purpose that we should be conformed to the character, to the image of Christ. And Ephesians 1.4 here says that we should be Holy, we should be separate from the world, from sin, and blameless before Him. Blameless. We cannot be a Christian and yet live a life of blameful lifestyle, but we should be blameless. So then what are some questions? Our question of reflection for today. Who is elect, right? I've been asked that. I'm sure we've wondered that at one point or another. Who is elect? I'll stick with this. We don't know, but we do have some hints. We do have some hints, some signs. First, if the things of God have made sense to you or begin to make sense to you, or you have an interest to learn more, that is a good sign. That is a good sign. Secondly, if you find yourself unfulfilled by the things of this world and what it has to offer, and you realize that God has better promises for you, that is a good sign. When you realize that the world cannot deliver. Third, if you are convicted of sin, that's the Holy Spirit convicting you, and realize that a world of, of darkness without Christ is not for you, that is a good sign. Next, even more so, if you have come to not only be convicted of sin, but you hate your sin and cannot resist the call of God to repent and be transformed in mind and heart and character, that is a good sign. God is indeed drawing you near. In those last two points, make no mistake. Somebody can be convicted of sin and push away. One could be convicted of sin 
and continue in it. It is something different to hate your sin. Hate your sin. And then lastly, if your faith shows fruit, that is a good sign. Remember, dead faith shows no fruit. Proclaim it, blab it, all you want. If your life has no fruit, it is dead faith. James chapter 2 tells us, dead faith does not save. But if your faith shows fruit, that is a good sign. And then I will add this. It will never be an excuse for somebody to say, well, God didn't want me to be saved. I'm not one of the elect. I can't stop doing what I'm doing. I love to party it up. I like being in the world. God must not have elected me. Answer? Wrong. The Bible tells us that if we do not come to Christ, it's because we love our sin. We love our sin. We don't want to turn away from darkness and go to the light because then our sinful nature, our sinful lifestyle will be exposed. That is why we will not be saved. Condemned by our own wickedness. Not because God didn't elect you. No. Let us remember then that the call of God to me, to you, as long as we're still breathing is the same. To repent and believe. Whether that is for salvation for the first time or as walking in our sanctification. Remember that map I told you about? We have been justified. Now we are walking in sanctification. The call for us as Christians is to repent and believe every day. Repent and believe. And for the non-believer, same. Repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. It could never and will never be an excuse that, well, maybe I wasn't elect. One of my favorite verses, we'll close with this. Matthew eleven twenty seven says, Jesus talking, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's no qualifications in that statement, in that invitation from Jesus. If you hate your sin, if you're convicted of sin, if you know you're not living right, either as a Christian or as an unbeliever, the call to you is the same. Go to Jesus, and He will give you rest. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness in keeping your covenant. That promise that you made that you will save your people. We thank you, Lord, that those who you have called will be saved, are being saved, and will be glorified. And that none of those would be able to be snatched out of your hand. We pray, therefore, that your Holy Spirit will grant us repentance. That childlike repentance and faith that you give us, Lord, so that we would not lose the joy and the assurance of our salvation. Oh, Lord, let us be, let us be 
Let us be acknowledging of our sin, of our need for you, that you may be gracious to us. Grant us, Lord, to walk in obedience and to show the fruit of faith, the fruit of obedience, which is what it comes to in our everyday life. We ask these things, Lord, boldly by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.